In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we are going to talk about Eureka Moments with the Hadza, ticks, tarp knots for limited hand mobility, striking matches in your teeth, and photo gear for trips. Welcome, welcome to episode 68 of Ask Paul Kirtley. And as you can probably tell from the background, I am in an area of largely coniferous forest, needled species all around me and snow. And I'm recording this in uh, March and it's still snow on the ground where I am. There's a good depth of snow and the perceptive amongst you may well guess that I am somewhere in the boreal forest, that large circumpolar forest that goes right around all the way through Eurasia, Russia, all the way through and round Alaska, right across the top of North America. And I'm actually in Canada at the moment and I have a, funny, I have a Canada J that has just come to check me out in this spruce tree here. Um, I'm actually gonna try and turn the camera around. I might scare it away. So apologies for the dodgy, dodgy camera work, but there, just in the tree. Hello. There's a group of them. <laughs> Hope you could see that, but there's a little family of them around here. There's a group of them and what they tend to do, um, similar to the Siberian Jays, is that they're always in at least pairs and one of them drops down to check you out while another one stays higher up, keeping watch but there's a few of them around here they were over there earlier on when i was just creating a spot to sit and they've come in closer to check me out so if you see them flitting around in the background keep your eye out also there's some ravens around although they tend to stay a bit higher up tops of the trees and there's a few red squirrels out today because it's quite a mild day um the temperature has come up it was minus 17 celsius this morning when I left the cabin, it had been a bit colder overnight, um, but it's warmed right up to not far below freezing. It's a nice uh, spring uh, almost day here. And um, what great opportunity to be able to sit out in the forest and answer some more of your questions and ask Paul Kirtley. Um, so I've set myself up here, cleared off a bit of snow from the top of a log, uh, got some spruce boughs, put them down to sit on. Um, I'm not in a provincial park where I'm filming this, by the way. You're not allowed to cut green boughs in provincial parks. I am not on uh, provincial park land at the moment. Um, I am on some private property where I'm filming this. And um, I'll talk a bit more at the end, I think, about what I'm doing here. I've only got my little camera, so it might be a little bit stop and start. Got some hot coffee which won't stay that hot for that long. And um, ready to go, really nice and comfy. 
spruce boughs to sit on, nice log to sit on, sun coming through the trees a bit, uh, surrounded by beautiful nature, and very happy to be answering more of your questions. Okay, um, <laughs> a bit of a contrast question about East Africa here. A uh, question from Adrian Spring, um, audio question. Let's see if we can get that to play. Hello, Mr. Kirtley. It's Adrian Spring with, yes, yet another question for the Ask Paul Kirtley podcast. My question for you, Paul, is this. You spent time with the Hadza tribe in Africa. And I was wondering, during your time with them, did you have a eureka moment? Or were there any sort of real gems of wisdom that they showed you? Um, that you still use today, even? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, thank you for all your hard work. It really is much appreciated. I'm sure I'm not the only one. And a big thank you for all your hard work. Thank you very much. Well, that's very kind of you, Adrian. It's my, my pleasure. Thank you for all your good questions over the months and, and years, in fact, that I've been doing Aspore Kirtley. Um, so, Hadza. Um, Hadza are a tribe of hunter-gatherers in East Africa. Um, and they live down near Lake Iasi. Um, not a million miles away from the Ngora Ngora crater, if you know where that is. Um, and they've been encroached upon by uh, pastoralists on one side who in turn have been pushed out of what have become national parks and equally there's a hunting concession owned by rich interests on the other side so they've, they've been somewhat squeezed but they still do um, a lot of them live a hunter-gatherer life and they rely on the land for food um, they have had a lot of exposure in recent years. Um, anthropologists in particular have jumped on them to study various aspects. And indeed, um, I've had Alyssa Crittenden on my Paul Kirtley podcast, which I will link uh, below the videos, um, wherever you're watching this, Alyssa Crittenden talking about their relationship with honey in particular and the honey guide and their use of um, that uh, resource in their environment, which is very interesting. Um, but uh, my time there, what did I particularly learn from them or what moments did I have? Um, first thing was that a lot of what they did, at least on a high level, was familiar. And I don't mean to sound like an arrogant knob saying that, but what I mean is that I looked at one of their shelters, like their improvised shelters, and... I, I could it, it seemed familiar to me you know in the terms of the construction it's the sort of thing that we might make in another environment um, of course slightly adapted for that environment less heavily thatched because it's largely to keep the sun off to keep the heat off when it's hot and just to provide a bit of shelter at night campfires again you know very familiar environment I spend a lot of time out camping um, hand drill um, again, a familiar skill. Unfamiliar materials, but familiar skill. The use of uh, bows and arrows. Familiar skill, unfamiliar materials, both for making the arrows and for making the bows. Um, but that that's all great. But the thing that then struck me is that, and it's a humbling thing, is that well, you know, even me, who is a sort of professional educator, I try and assimilate and bring together knowledge 
um, look at commonalities between different things. And I think that's one advantage that I have in being able to travel to different places, being able to travel to Africa, Australia, all around Eurasia, North America. You can start to see the commonalities and you can start to say, right, this is, this is a core thing that if you're interested in bushcraft or survival skills, you need to learn. And then this is something that's core for a particular environment. And you can separate those things out. And that's a, that's a perspective that you get by by traveling a lot and looking at different aspects but i think the thing that was humbling for me was i'm kind of still playing at it you know i come from a first world country um and um i've got a home to go back to um i've got a car um i can jump on a plane and go other places they're not playing at it they are living that life they're those things that on one level are familiar to me, like shelters that, very similar to shelters I might have students build on a course. Those students are gonna go home at the end of the weekend or the end of the week. Those guys that had to, men and women and children are living there. And I think that was something that really struck me um, both the absolute familiarity of some of what they were doing and the, and the techniques and skills they were using, but also the complete alien nature of the fact that they were living there as opposed to learning there. I think that's, that's a big thing that I took away from that. Um, another thing that I took away, of course, was just their absolute intimate understanding of the environment, um, understanding of being able to obtain food. And I think that's an area, it was something that I, I you know, I knew, um, something that uh, uh, academically or um, intellectually that I knew, but the fact that they are going out and getting food um, to live from uh, that the land requires a deep and intimate knowledge of nature, when certain fruits are ripe, how to find certain tuberous roots, um, how to find fallback foods when other foods are not available. Um, to see that firsthand was, was uh, an honour and um, I was very grateful for that. So I think those are some of my biggest takeaways um, from that. So the, the technique, looking at how they uh, made arrows, looking at how they uh, made hand drills, looking at how they used the hand drills, looking at how often they used the hand drill. They used the hand drill like we would use, like a smoker here would use a cigarette lighter. They used the hand, hand drill just to get, uh, you know, they, they do have tobacco, they do smoke, they trade for that um, to have a smoke, for example. And uh, I don't know what it is with me in planes. Um, I don't know if that's picking up on the, um, on the audio. I am uh, in an area where there are very few people. <laughs> there are no snow machines here, um, but there is a commercial airliner somewhere very high up there and the sounds coming down that I can hear at least um, overflying this area. Um, it just seems to be one of those features. So um, I think that's, that's um, those are my big takeaways, Adrian. Um, I may have other things to comment in the future, but um, that's uh, those are my uh, big takeaways. Hopefully that's uh, insightful for you. And it definitely informs um, the way I teach, what I teach. And again, it allows me to illustrate certain things that I wouldn't be able to illustrate um, without that experience, particularly on some of my intermediate courses um, where I'm encouraging students to stand up on their own two feet um, and use their skills and rely on their skills. Having that experience of um, working with and observing and spending time with people who are really relying on those skills to live um, gives real weight and foundation to some of the things that I teach on my courses. So yeah, those are my uh, big takeaways.
great people as well, wonderful people, very warm, very welcoming. Um, on one level, they really have nothing um, in terms of material wealth, but on another level, they have everything because it's all there in the bush for them. And it's really humbling to spend time with them and for them to share food with you, um, share their knowledge with you. Uh, it, was, it was a really fantastic experience and I look forward to getting back there at some point. If some of you are wondering how am I in the middle of nowhere and I've got my phone and I'm getting the questions, um, the note system that I use, um, Evernote, uh, if you have the subscription service, you can have notes saved offline. So I sort the questions out and then they're, they're locally stored on my phone. Um, there's no phone reception here where I am. This is quite a long question. Um, I'll try and read it quickly. This is from Jeff, and his question is, Hi, Paul, I really appreciate your Ask Paul Curtly series. I listen and listen again in my car on my way back from work. And even if I practice outdoor sports and trips for more than 20 years now, I still learn from it, and it also changed my points of view on many subjects. However, this is my question. Here in the north of France, where I'm located, we have a have to deal with more and more ticks. When I started my first bivvies, uh, they were known to be found only on dogs. In the early years of the 21st century, I hardly found some on my body. Now, I can't sleep in the woods without bringing one or two with me. I finally made the choice when in the woods to always use a bug net under my tarp when I don't use a tent. And of course, I use uh, liters in an exclamation mark, uh, in, in inverted commas rather, of DEET from May to October each year. I just wonder if ticks appear to be a big issue for you in outdoor life, and if it's the case, have you changed any habits you had because of these new predators? Thanks for your videos. Best regards, Jeff. Um, yeah, well, ticks are becoming an increasing issue, and this is, I'm hoping that you can see me all right. It's looking quite dark because uh, of the bright background. Apologize for that if it's the case. Um, yeah, I mean, there are. we're having warmer winters um, in Northern Europe, uh, both in the UK and continental Europe. And we're having warmer winters. We have been for some time, and that is allowing uh, more uh, insects to survive over the winters. And it's not just uh, ticks, it's other insects as well that are... Uh, that are changing both in terms of the distribution and numbers because of warmer winters. Uh, and then the other thing as well is I don't know what the situation is in northern France, Jeff. Um, my knowledge doesn't extend to that in terms of deer numbers, but I know for sure in the UK that deer numbers have gone up in many areas of the UK um, and allied with um, warmer winters. Uh, and those two things may, of course, be related as well. Um, that uh, that means there are more ticks around. And uh, yeah, some areas I go to, there are a lot of ticks. Some other areas that I work and, and regularly visit, there aren't so many, even though there's a reasonable deer population, for example, in uh, the area that I run training courses in the south of England, um, there's quite a lot of fallow deer in that area and there are a good number of roe deer. There isn't, um, there isn't a 
huge preponderance of ticks. There's the occasional one that somebody gets, um, one of my team or one of the students on a course, um, but it's unusual. It's not, it's not something that happens to everybody. It's certainly not something that happens on every course or every week that we're there. Um, even through the summer whereas uh, other places I visit such as the Lake District if you get in the bracken in the Lake District these days it seems like you come out with ticks on you straight away um, and I get there are red deer in that area um, so yeah I think part of it is is the locality but I think as a general point um, there are more around and so yes I have noticed that and I and other people have noticed that as well um, in terms of have I changed my uh, attitude or uh, techniques or systems for the outdoors as a result of that um, not massively um, I still sleep on the ground just in a bivy bag, um, a sleeping bag in the south of England in Sussex at any time of year. I don't have any problems. I have more problems with slugs um, than I have with ticks um, ever really, but particularly there. Um, in the lakes, when I'm working in the Lake District in the middle of the summer, um, I tend to use uh, a tent um, or um, if I'm bivying, um, I will make sure I'm well away from bracken and i think the general thing as well wherever you are if there are deer in the area then you just check yourself at the end of the day um you look um uh, at your at your armpits you look at your groin um you look around your waistline um for any of those uh, little specks and you remove them in the um in the best fashion uh, without squashing or squeezing um, the uh, the little uh, the little tick before it uh, before it engorges itself on you um, and that's the best thing and then of course monitor yourself for uh, the main issue in most places in in the UK for example is Lyme disease um, I know there are some issues with encephalitis in mainland Europe, um, but the main issue in uh, the UK is um, Lyme disease. And again, you just need to monitor for a rash um, that might happen after that. And I've talked about that on earlier podcasts in the past, on earlier Ask Paul Kirtley's, um, and I've linked through to an interview um, about Lyme disease um, that... Uh, Mark uh, put on Big Man in the Woods um, put on his podcast and I will link to that again under here because that's still relevant you can listen to that so um, that's that and then the other thing just generally in terms of habits it's not just sleeping it's where you put your latrine because you often put a latrine if you're in a group especially um, somewhere that's secluded and if that's an area of bracken just be a bit careful about you know going deep into the bracken and pulling your pants down because that's um, an invitation to get ticks um, stuck in places that you probably don't want ticks so think carefully about that um, in terms of yes have somewhere secluded have somewhere that is also hygienic in terms of water supply not just for your group but other people who are using the, the area whether they're local people that live there or whether they're other campers of course that takes precedent but um, also you, you know think about how you get to that spot without pulling yourself through loads of undergrowth that might harbour ticks um, give yourself a reasonable route in where you're less likely or just trample it and dog leg it so that it's secluded um, so you can get there without bushwhacking um, 
uh, but you can still have your privacy. That's one thing I think that's um, important uh, when you've got groups. But other than that, I can't think of anything major that I've done. I don't tend to use a lot of insect repellent. Um, that's something I don't find I need to do. I use a bit when I'm in highly mosquito-infested areas, um, but a head net or a bug suit, and that's this is getting off the topic, is um, what I massively rely on in those places. Um, but yeah, something to keep a watching brief on for all of us as um, we have these warmer winters and... Uh, yeah uh, do take care do check yourself and if you are bitten and you feel like you might be uh, infected with something because you get a rash afterwards or you feel unwell afterwards go to the doctor straight away and tell them that's that right next question top knots for limited hand mobility this is a question from instagram from easy mac 308 um picture of a tarp my shelter from a recent trip to the mount baker snoqualmie national forest in western washington paul what knots do you recommend for folks with less mobility in their hands i rely heavily on the siberian hitch as popularized by ray mears but it would be good to have more than one trick up my sleeve cheers P.S. I did make it more taut after that pick was taken. <laughs> Fair enough. Good. Um, so, limited hand mobility. I, I don't know how limited your hand mobility is, or whether you're asking for yourself or whether you're asking for somebody else. Um, one thing I would say is that the the siberian or evenk versions of those knots because you know they're just you know the, the typical evenk hitch that people use for tying off a tarp is all it is is a uh, figure of eight knot with a it's a slippery figure of eight with a quick release that's what it is um it's just as a clever way of tying it and and this is why i find it interesting that you ask about hand mobility because the whole point of tying it the way that the Evenk tie it is that you can tie it quickly and you can even tie it with mittens on um, because it's designed for use in cold environments so they all you know they effectively have limited hand mobility or at least limited dexterity and limited sensitivity because they're using handwear while tying them um so it might just be a case of practice I, and, and i don't mean to be patronizing in saying this because you can tie it quite quickly with only the use of your of your finger and thumbs um but it does take some practice and and that might be just the issue i mean practice um in a in a warm environment um at home um before you're out and needing it that's that's one thing but if you find that if you find it difficult because some people do find it you know it, it's just something that they find hard to do i know from having taught it to a lot of people some people get it straight away and other people just find it difficult um don't find it particularly intuitive uh, way to tie something off um you can always just go back to a round turn and two half hitches and half hitches are easy to tie um you know they don't require a lot of uh dexterity you know wrap your wrap it around a couple of times half hitch half hitch and if you want to make it 
quick release just make the second one uh, just put a bite through rather than put the end through on the second hitch um, and that will be you know the first one will be quick release and then the second one will loosen because a single half hitch won't um, secure things necessarily that's why you put two on so um, that might be an option just to do a couple of couple of half hitches um, so have a play with that because they're simple and they're easy to do and um, do a couple of wraps around so do a full round turn as it's known because then you get lots of friction on the tree um, and then at the other end um, the the taut tarp hitch is probably still the best way of doing it um, and again to get the tension in the line by taking it around the tree and I have a video on this I'll link it I'll link it uh, below um, taking the line around the tree and then back over the line and putting your body you know you only need to be able to make a couple of fists to hold onto the line put your body weight onto it to tension it and then take it back around and yes there then is a bit of fiddliness with the making that little triangle pulling it up through pulling it through again but you can modify that if you just pull it all the way through do another half hitch and pull it through again to do another half hitch it's two half hitches again um, to, to lock it off but you've done that tensioning part and you still get a nice uh, taut line so you could just use half hitches which is simple and straightforward because you, you just make it you're just crossing over and passing back up through or passing back down through and um, there's nothing more complicated than that as long as you hold the tension in there and you can hold the tension just by making fists so have a play with that um, and then with the um, with the guy lines, um, the the um, the adjustable guy line hitch is, is good. But if you didn't want it to be quick release, what you could do was you could make loops um, on the end of your guy lines. You could do you could do this at home, and you could do it once. You can do the hitches on there, and but rather than making them quick release, pull the end through. So it's much more of a consolidated uh, knot. And then what you can do, if you want, if you want to make double sure that it doesn't come un loose and come undone, and you have to retie it because it's fiddly with that fine uh, guy line, uh, put a bit of electrical tape around it to hold the knot together. So you've got sliders. You've got sliders that are there with a loop on the end. So it's attached to your tarp. You've got the loop, adjustable loop at the end with the um, uh, the adjustable guy line hitch without the quick release. You can put that over your tent peg, over um, whatever you're tying off to, and then you can tighten it up. The downside of that is if you want to tie off around a tree or tie off around a root or something where you have to pass the live end through, you can no longer do that because you've, you've created the loop ahead of time. But in terms of if you're using pegs in particular, uh, whether they're pegs you've taken with you or whether they're pegs that you make when you're out, um, then it's nice and quick. You can, uh, you can just pop the loop over, tighten it up and you're done. Um, so that might be something to have a play with as well. So a few ideas there for you based around what you already know, based around what I've shown in my videos, but what might be simpler and easier for you to do. And I'll link to um, those knots, um, the uh, taut tarp hitch and the adjustable guideline hitch. If you don't know those, I'll, uh, I'll link to those. And as I say, you can, uh, you can modify both of those in the way that I've explained and hopefully they're even more useful to you then. All right. Next question. Striking matches with your teeth. This is from Jeff. Hi, Paul. I'm getting a dry mouth. I'm just going to drink some cold coffee, but it's nice. 
it's wet, which is what I need today. It's not that cold here. Very pleasant. It's the middle of the day. One o'clock. Yeah, one o'clock. All right, this is from Jeff. Hi, Paul. I've been reading about cabins with stoves in northern countries where it is common courtesy to leave feather sticks, kindling firewood and a matchbox with some of the matches protruding from the box. My understanding is that, the, that this is so someone who may be suffering from frostbitten hands and cannot use them effectively can withdraw a match using their teeth and strike it against the box. Is this a technique that you practice? If so, what is the best method? As I guess this is not something you would want to be learning to do when you really needed it. Keep up the good work. All the best. Jeff. Um, yeah, I mean, I've read that um, and Ray Mears mentioned it in one of his shows. I think it was one of the extreme survival shows years ago um, and used the story of a guy who actually saved himself by doing that. Um, he left, he was considerate. He left the cabin in that way. Then he suffered um, a, an incident himself, had to go back to the cabin with very cold hands and managed to use um, what he'd left for other people for himself. Um, to be honest with you, I have never ever and i'm not saying that, it, that people haven't done this in the past but i have never ever gone into a cabin in sweden norway or canada and found that um i found shavings i found split wood i've found plenty of matches but i've never found it left in the way that you describe and that i've read described and that i've heard ray describe um i've left cabins that way myself because I always hold myself to a, a certain standard. I don't care if other people are not as considerate. I don't care if people don't do things to the same standard that I try and work to, unless they work for me, of course, um, <laughs> in which case I do hold them to the same standards. Um, but um, generally, um, you know, if I'm working, I will leave a cabin with split wood, with um, some feather sticks that are suitable for whatever the stove is, whether they're full-size feather sticks or stove feather sticks. Um, I will leave um, plenty of wood um, and everything ready to go. Uh, it's just a matter of courtesy. Um, do I practice lighting matches with my teeth? No, it's not that difficult to do, frankly. Um, if you can hold, the match in your teeth, um, I would say generally uh, hold the match between your teeth and then just however you can hold the matchbox, strike strike it, okay? And and it works. Um, yes, okay, you might, you know, get some sulfurous fumes up your nose. Um, you might scorch an eyebrow. Uh, you might burn the end of your nose. But, you know, in the context, <laughs> it's kind of not relevant. Um, the context is, you know, you want to get a stove going um, and that's that's important. And if you've got feather sticks, this is the other thing. If you've got feather sticks, you know, you can and again, you might lose an eyebrow doing this. Um, but rather than because you you haven't got the dexterity in your hands, if you're trying to get a matchstick out of your teeth to light something, you're probably going to drop it. Yeah, If you haven't got the dexterity to hold it to strike it in the first place, you're probably going to drop it. So 
if you've got a feather stick made, you can bring that to the flame. Yeah, you can light the feather stick and take it to the stove. And uh, yeah, it does work. You can practice it. Um, I've tried it a few times. It does work. Um, it's not something I do regularly um, because I understand how it works. And it's not something that requires a lot of practice to maintain the skill once you've got the understanding of how it works. Have a go. Uh, don't do it in your living room, though. <laughs> do it outside somewhere. And do be careful about your eyes and your face and stuff. It's, um, you know, it's uh, it, eyes are precious, as my mum always used to say. Do be very careful. Do it under your own uh, common sense, as it were. Um, and, you know, no, no liability on me <laughs> if, you, if you take an eyebrow off. Okay. So this question is about photo gear for trips. And this is from, who is this from? This is from Stephen Tomlinson. Hi, Steve. Um, hi, Paul. I wonder if you could discuss with us what photography kit you take with you when you're out and about. I don't mean specific photo shoot or make of kit, but I'm thinking of protective gear for your camera and lens in inclement weather. How big is your camera bag? How many lenses, etc.? Okay, well, it kind of does sound like you're asking about the kit, um, but also how I look after it, um, which is fair enough because when you're traveling, um, that's, a, that's a question. I'm hoping this is bright enough. It's a very bright background. Ah, I just have to bring the shadows up, I think, when I edit this. Yeah sun's coming around now through the trees um photography kit so i've often if you read my wild wanderings blogs which are photo blogs largely um around nature um around tree and plant identification tracks and sign often fungi things that i find as I'm out and about in different parts of the world, you will know that I will write at the bottom what camera I've used um, for taking the photographs. And also, if I've used a particular camera and a number of lenses, I'll also say what lenses. So you can refer to those for the type of camera kit that I use. And if you look through all of those, you'll see the range of camera kit that I use and have used. Um, what am I currently using in terms of photography kit in particular? You asked about photography rather than videography. What am I using in terms of photography kit? Um, well, the main things that I use are the smallest camera I have is the one that I'm using here, which is a Canon G7X. And that's a small compact camera, but it's very good quality. You can shoot in RAW. Um, you've got full manual control over aperture and shutter speed, um, exposure compensation, all of those sorts of things. It's a good little travel camera. It's a good one for hiking because it doesn't take up a lot of weight it's got a metal body it's quite robust i've got the first version the mark one um, amanda my partner's got the mark two it's a little bit bulkier but it's got a better a more uh, multifunctional hinge on the back lens uh, back lens sorry the back screen and it's a good little camera it's quite expensive for a small camera um, but it's a very very good small camera and i like it a lot and it's good for video as well that's what i'm using for video today um I also have a Leica Deluxe um, Type 109, um, and that's kind of almost like a mini DSLR. It's got a micro four-thirds sensor. Um, 
it shoots 4K video, not that I shoot 4K video. It does very good time lapses. If you ever saw the uh, Aurora time lapse that I did from a blood vein a few years ago, that was shot with that little camera. Um, it takes nice photographs. It's got a nice lens on it. It's got the 35 millimeter equivalent of a 28 to 75 millimeter on it. It's a good compact camera. So if I want to do a little bit more, um, precise photography uh, slightly you know if I want to do nighttime photography um, it's got a bigger sensor than this camera um, it has um, I can get more control of the depth of field with that camera partly because it has a, a larger sensor um, it, and I, I can use it like a small DSLR um, I don't find the macro photography autofocus on that particularly great but other than that it's a great little camera and there's a lumix version of it as well if you don't want the like a badged version uh, it's the lumix ones are slightly cheaper um and the body is slightly different but they're good cameras and i like that a lot and as a travel photography camera that's probably where i'm at so for example um when i was in australia um over the turn of the year from 2017 into 2018 that was the camera that i took it's a good travel photography camera it's um quite discreet if you're doing street photography as well or photography in places where you don't want to be carrying a big um expensive looking slr around with you but you can still get really good quality images out of it not that you can't get good quality images out of this either but the other thing it has is it has a viewfinder and I like for photography for proper photography for serious photography where you're really thinking about composition you're really thinking about depth of field I like using something that's got a viewfinder even if it's an EVF even if it's an electronic viewfinder so I use that camera quite a lot as a travel photography. I tend to use this G7X either as a hiking uh, camera where weight is absolutely paramount and I can do photography and video with it um, or I just tend to use this as a mini video camera um, whereas the Leica I tend to just use as a mini DSLR um, then I have a, a, um, a Nikon uh, D800 um, I am looking at the D850 but I, I can't justify spending that amount of money at the moment but I am looking at it um, I have a D800 which I've used for a number of years it's a fantastic camera I've been a Nikon system user for many many years right back to the F100 that I had the film camera that I had years ago 35 millimeter I have a range of lenses that I use with that camera um, from uh, 17 to 35 through to an 80 to 400 and I've got a number of primes in there as well very nice macro lens nice couple of nice 50 millimeters nice 28 millimeter in that collection as well and that's that that's the camera i use a lot for really detailed photography i on expeditions when i can justify carrying it so winter trips i've got it with me for this trip um, where you've got a toboggan or a snow machine um, or a summer trip such as a canoe um, then I will take that camera particularly when you're accessing absolutely amazing places that you might never go back to again I want my best photography camera so that's the photography kit that I use really small compact camera g7x medium size camera which is a nice photography camera but also um, compact and discreet that's the Leica Deluxe Type 109 and then I use the D800 as well uh, for really my most you know serious photography landscape travel um, and a lot of tree and plant uh, photography as well macro photography of details etc etc I can just capture wonderfully with that camera um, so that's what I use so how do I look after them um, the main thing I use for looking after cameras on trips is um, 
two things, um, two, two kind of broad things. I use a lot of low pro um, bags. Um, so everything from a small case for this camera um, through to a nice satchel sort of style bag for my D800 um, that I have with me here. Um, just a camera bag, sort of top loading. I can get a couple of lenses in there and a camera. So what have I got with me on this trip? Well, I was thinking, thinking about what I needed. So I've got 17 to 35 for landscape. I have a 50 uh, f1.8, um, which is good for portraits. It's good for general photography. It's good for low light photography. It's good for night photography. Um, and I have with me a 60 millimeter macro for nature details. Um, I chose not to bring a telephoto because I didn't think I would really use it very much on this trip. Whereas if I was doing a canoe trip where I'm more like in this environment where I'm more likely to come across a moose, uh, a bear, uh, a, a bald eagle or something, um, I want the telephoto. And I, uh, I, don't have I don't have a fixed telephoto because they're too big and bulky to carry on trips where you're covering distance unless you're vehicle based generally I find personally um, I've got an 80 to 400 which isn't you know as top quality as a fixed um, fixed uh, lens but for my purposes it's quite compact and I can I can take it with me on a canoe journey so I might take 17 to 35 60 and a 80 to 400 on a canoe journey like I did on the Missanibe, like I did on the French River last year. And that's a great combination. And they go in a Pelican case, hard case, um, with waterproof seals, foam inserts, that keeps everything well protected. Um, check the seals every year, check they're working and, you, and you're good to go. Same with my small cameras, if I happen to do a trip where I don't want to take so I, I often on this on the river spay I don't take my DSLR we're paddling a lot there's occasional opportunity for taking photos um, I might just bring a small camera and um, I have a small peli case I have a small um, peli case that I can put a compact camera in and a GoPro a few of the and spare batteries you always remember room for spare batteries and cleaning kit and and that's what I take um, so if I'm if I'm in the water or on the water I have Pelly cases, and otherwise I just use low pro uh, camera bags or camera pouches, and that serves me very very well. Um, and then I take a, a, a blower, a little blower, a little squeezy blower brush, um, or a squeezy blower, a little dust off brush, lenses, sometimes camera clean, um, lens cleaning fluid, um, plenty of spare batteries, um, cable release, lightweight carbon fiber tripod and that's me and you can do an awful lot even with what I've got here you know I can do video I can do really good photography and it, it doesn't weigh a huge amount um, we flew into where we are um, in a light aircraft um, and you know you limited weight on those things limited weight and space but still I've got all that stuff with me because it's important um, hopefully that answers your question um, inclement weather um, you mentioned um, good SLRs tend to be weatherproofed. They have weatherproof seals on them, and that's something to be um, that's something to consider. So when you have them out and it's raining a bit, you've still got um, some protection. But you do need to be careful, particularly with cameras like this with a retractable lens. You can get water into the mechanism. My old compact camera, my old Canon compact camera, the Ixus I used to use, got water into the back screen. Um, I, I didn't 
end up in the water i was just filming uh sorry photographing on a rainy day in uh in wales um and rain got into the lens the i keep saying lens i don't know why into the screen on the back um and it never worked again um unfortunately the camera still worked i could still take photographs with it but i couldn't see uh, on the screen on the back i couldn't change the settings or anything unfortunately so um i'd had that camera for a long number of years um i'd, I'd got i got plenty it didn't owe me anything but i was still sad because it was a nice little camera so yes you do need to be careful um try and choose kit that is professional or you know semi-professional level in the first place because it tends to be more robust metal bodies rather than plastic bodies and it tends to have weather sealing on it as well if you can weather seal it and then of course if you need to take waterproof cases to keep things in um, while you're traveling that's that's my advice um, keep things clean keep them free of dust uh, and uh, they should be good Right, that brings us to the end. Just as the sun's coming round the trees, a very contrasty day. Um, but looking forward to the rest of my time here. And uh, I will tell you what I'm up to, actually. Um, but I'm going to just stop this camera again because I'm coming up to the, the... That's the one downside with this camera for videoing. It only records for about 12 minutes and then stops. What I'm doing here in Canada is I'm doing a recce for a trip uh, a potential trip i've for a long time wanted to do a trip with students with clients however you want to view it people who want to learn uh, boreal forest bushcraft skills in the winter um, it's something i've been asked to do a number of times uh, by people over the years um, i have produced a few videos and blogs about um, boreal forest trips in the past and I guess that uh, generates some interest. And winter camping, hot tenting, uh, snowshoeing, uh, the, the, the shelter skills, the foraging skills, or the fishing and trapping skills, and all of those things are something that people want to learn about and just how to manage yourself in the cold. And that's what we're looking at doing, putting together a program that is aimed at people who are not familiar with this environment, that they can come and learn safely um, and be exposed to this environment and be exposed to the cold northern forest and the skills that are required and to be able to recognise the resources here. And um, that's what I'm here for. So I'm here with a couple of colleagues and we're checking out an area that's a combination of private land and uh, park um, that gives us the resources and the ability to use certain resources and the the scope to to travel to journey as well and to apply um, those journeying skills in this environment it's very remote um where we where we are there is nobody else for miles and miles and miles and miles around as i say we flew in by light aircraft to where we are um, we're based in a small cabin and then we're going out getting to know the area on day trips at the moment and then we're also going to be going out for a multi-day trip by snowshoe and toboggan uh, to check out a, a, a walking route or a range of areas that we could go to um, with with uh, with you if you're interested so that's what we're here doing um 
and all the while I'm here, uh, we're trying things, we're experimenting with things. I'm taking a lot of photographs of um, aspects of this environment that can be used for, for blogs and publications. And uh, of course, recording an Aspel Kirtley here as well, which is a good opportunity. And uh, if you're interested in that, if you go to frontierbushcraft.com forward slash winter and leave your email address there, when we have something uh, to share with you about the, the forthcoming trip, I will send you the information by email. So that's frontierbushcraft.com forward slash winter, and you will. Uh, be presented with a page you can leave your name and your email address there and i will send you the information when you're ready a frontier bushcraft in case you don't know is my uh, company my training company that i offer all of the courses um whether they're online courses field courses and wilderness expeditions um they're all offered through that training company that's my official uh way of teaching if you like through that company but of course all that free material on my blog as well including Aspel Kirtley and on YouTube and this is on more and more platforms as a podcast as well. Player FM is one I found recently that I really like and if you haven't found a good podcast player for your Android phone in particular I would recommend checking out Player FM. Um, I think it's very good. I'm using it myself now for the podcast that I listen to. Um, I was listening to some on the plane uh, on the international flight over to Canada um, last week and uh, it works very well. You can stream stuff but also you can download it to your phone so you can play it later when you're not online which is useful to me um, because I'm often not online either traveling on planes or out in remote places like this where there's no internet here. There's no phone coverage. I've got a satellite phone with me if I need to communicate with anybody. That's how far away from anything we are. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this episode of Ask Paul Curtly. Thank you for joining me in the Boreal Forest. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for the great questions, everyone who submitted questions recently. I am still working through them all. I'm trying to, the best I can, get one of these out every week. And... Uh, I look forward to speaking to you on the next Ask Paul Kirtley and I look forward to your questions. Take care and stay safe in the outdoors.